ask any elementary school child what their favorite subject is, and they will likely tell you, recess. Recess. <laughs> I loved recess. Looked forward to recess as the long, slow hours in the classroom would pass. They were alleviated by 20 minutes here. Or 40 minutes at lunch. Or even a 10-minute break. I remember even the 10-minute morning break. How much a child could pack in to 10 minutes of just release and play and rest and fun. And while we're studying through the book of Revelation, don't forget that John is being schooled even as he writes. I think sometimes we think that a pastor or a teacher or one of the apostles... That when teaching is going on, that they've got all the answers down. They they have it all. I've said many times, I'm maybe a few hours ahead of where we are right now. You know, or maybe a couple of days ahead in terms of my learning. There's so many things I learn during the week and then I share. And it's not that, oh, well, Rick just has the answers. No, I just got the answer. Or we're getting the answer sometimes in the moment God is bringing revelation in the Scriptures. And so we're all just learning together. John was learning the revelation as he wrote the revelation. Isn't that marvelous? But that being the case, as the schooling was going on, there were times where it was no doubt overwhelming. Times where John needed recess. He needed a little break. We read through, we saw the seven seal judgments in chapter 6 and ending in chapter 8. And then we saw the seven trumpet judgments of chapters 8 and 9. And you need to note, and we talked about this at the time, that there's a break between the sixth and seventh judgments in both of those two series of judgments. You get six of the seal judgments and then there's a, a break, a pause. And then you come to the seventh seal judgment. And then you get six trumpet judgments and there's a recess, a pause, a longer one really. And then you get to the seventh trumpet judgment in between, recess. And it's wonderful. In fact, it's brilliant, compassionate teaching on the part of the Lord. Because just when you might imagine John's chest getting heavy with dread as he's seeing and writing these things down, just as his heart fearfully rises in his throat... Jesus blows the recess whistle. <laughs> and I wonder if the Lord is looking, I, I assume the Lord is looking at John as he's revealing these things and he's seeing the tension rise in his face and he's seeing the dread in his eyes and he says, Tweet, John, recess. Pause. Let me tell you something else. Let, let's, let's ease the stress for just a moment. Same thing plays out in the bold judgments. Between the sixth and the seventh bowl. You see, John is deep into these severe judgments of the great tribulation. Wrath pouring out on an ever-hardening, unrepentant, blasphemous world. As I shared Wednesday night, the bowl judgments are different than the trumpets and the seals because with the bowl judgments, there is zero repentance and there's zero opportunity for repentance. These judgments are pure judgments. They are not about repentance. Because that time has passed. Oh, not because the Lord has caused the time to pass, but because the people will not repent. John watches as judgments begin to fall. They fall in terms of boils. And then seas of blood and rivers of blood. A supernova scorching sun. 
followed by a darkness so deep it is tongue-gnawingly painful. And then the Euphrates River dries up, clearing the way for the armies of the east to head down to Armageddon as these demonic frogs go out and call the world to Har Megiddo, the Mount of Rendezvous. Demonic frogs, yeah, we'll talk about that Wednesday night. It's a riveting study. (laughs) But at this point, I can imagine from John's perspective that what may have begun that morning is the warm sun and quiet lapping currents of the Aegean Sea washing up against the cool sounds on that island of Patmos. Oh, those things are long forgotten to the near despair as the old apostle is trying to steady a trembling hand. And suddenly, before we get to the seventh and final bold judgment, which is a judgment of world-pounding, city-splitting, mountain-flattening, island-seeking hailstones. Before we get there, the familiar voice speaks and Jesus calls recess. Behold, verse 15, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. Behold, he says, I'm coming. Behold, I'm coming. Now, this is the briefest recess of the three. You know, in between the sixth and the seventh judgment, this one's clearly the shortest. But like I said, even 10 minutes on the playground is helpful. Even 10 minutes break is worth it. And so Jesus says, John, hey, listen, behold, I'm coming. Behold, I'm coming. Behold, I'm coming. I can't think of three more comforting words for a follower of Jesus Christ. Behold, I am coming. I'm coming. I think about the Sunday morning when a pastor was preaching. And the topic of his sermon was, Behold, I come. And for effect, he began to say it louder and louder and louder. Behold, I come. And he'd pound the pulpit when he did it. And he'd preach a little bit and then say, Behold, I come. And he'd pound the pulpit when he did it. Finally, he leaned out over the pulpit saying, Behold, I come! And the pulpit broke and he rolled head over heels into the front row and landed on a senior saint's lap. The widow, shocked and surprised, looking at him and he gets up and dusts himself off and he says, Ma'am, I'm I'm so sorry. And she said, No, Sonny, it's okay. You kept telling me you were coming. Behold, I'm coming, Jesus says. John, don't forget. Rick, don't lose sight. Child of God, never forget. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, not the revelation of the seven bold judgments. The seven bold judgments are coming, will happen, are part of the deal, and are revealed here in chapter 16, but this is the revelation of Jesus. And so even here in the midst of these devastating bold judgments, Jesus reveals himself. Behold, I'm coming. And what consolation. I'm coming like a thief. In other words, like a thief unexpectedly to a world oblivious, Ignorant, unaware, caught off guard. You know, Bible students, people should be able to count down to the very second of his return. So the Bible tells us that from the signing of a covenant that Antichrist will bring, it will be seven years, the final seven, 
from the signing of the covenant to the end. So all people would have to do in the world of that time is note the day and the hour and the minute that that covenant is signed. Seven years later, Jesus says, I'm coming. And yet he still says, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Well, how can he come like a thief if he's announced his coming? Because people are oblivious. Because you still have a vast world of people who are unrepentant and hardened in their rebellion and blaspheming God. And they have no idea. They are ignorant of his coming. And I just need to say this. I pray that's not you this morning. I pray that you are not ignorant of his coming. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You can turn there or, or just listen. But 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 1, he said, Now as to the times, the chronos in the Greek, and the epochs or the kairos, which is the seasons, as to the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. In other words, while we don't know the day or the hour, we should very well know the times and the seasons of his coming. We should be able to recognize we're in that last season. We can see what's going on in the world around us. We are alerted to the fact that he is coming. And he had already said, I'm coming like a thief. But then Paul says, you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child. And they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to you and to me. It shouldn't surprise us. We should know the exact timing. You are all sons of light and sons of day. We're not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do. Let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as also you are doing. And that's what we're doing right here. Encouraging one another to keep our eyes open, to not be caught off guard. Do not be ignorant of the coming of the Lord. Behold, He says, I am coming. Be dressed and alert and ready to go. Or be naked and inert and really ashamed. I loved uh, Josh's reading of the scripture this morning. That's good advice. (laughs) It's perfect. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. You know, we can choose to be like Adam Genesis 3.10, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Who told you you were naked? God said. I can be that way. Ashamed, fearful, hiding in my sin. Naked, trying to clothe myself with all kinds of things that just don't cover, like fig leaves. We could also choose rather to be like Isaiah. Like Isaiah. Now, this is really cool about Isaiah. 
Isaiah, like Adam, knew shame and nakedness. Did you know this about the prophet Isaiah? Perhaps you've heard the story of the naked prophet. This is one I am so thankful that the Lord has never asked of me. And I'm sure you are thankful as well. But Isaiah chapter 20 tells us this brief story. In the year that the commander came to Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him, and he fought against Ashdod and captured it, at that time the Lord spoke through Isaiah, the son of Amoz. He gives him a prophecy that is all about Egypt and Ethiopia. God is concerned about other nations other than Israel. And so in this prophecy, it's for these two nations. And he says to Isaiah, go and loosen the sackcloth from your hips and take your shoes off your feet. And he did so going naked and barefoot. Can you imagine saying yes, Lord, to that? And Isaiah said, even as my or the Lord said, (laughs) The Lord said, even as my servant Isaiah has gone naked and barefoot, note this, three years. Three years. As a sign and a token against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead away the captives of Egypt and the exiles of Cush, young and old, naked and barefoot with buttocks uncovered. It's in your Bibles, folks. To the shame of Egypt and note this, then they will be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush, their hope, and Egypt, their boast. So the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, behold, such is our hope, for we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, and we, how shall we escape? Naked and ashamed. But this is the marvelous thing about Isaiah and why Isaiah is so different than Adam. Adam caught in his nakedness. Adam ashamed and hiding himself in his nakedness. And the world teaches that if we're going to boast in anything, boast in the Lord. If we're going to hope in anyone, hope in the Lord. And Isaiah's three-year streak (laughs) lends itself to profound meaning in something else. That he says, what's that? Isaiah 61 verse 10, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels to keep your clothes. As Jesus says back in Revelation 16, 15 is to be dressed in practical righteousness. And Isaiah was. So again, you you have this option. You can be like Adam, caught naked and ashamed. Or you can be like Isaiah, who knew what it was like to be naked and ashamed. Those who have accepted Jesus know what it's like to live without Him. Remember what it was like before we were saved. Know that there was a time of shame and nakedness. But now we've been wrapped with garments of righteousness. A robe of salvation. And Jesus says, now, behold, I am coming. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes. Practical righteousness. And we talked about this in a recent study. Remember the linen garments? The linen garments speak of practical righteousness. Revelation 19, verse 8. It was given to her, the bride, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. Why? For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Note, the righteous acts of the saints were given to her. 
It doesn't say it was performed by her, the bride, in all righteousness. No, righteousness was given to her. Even the ability to righteous behavior was given to the bride. Given to you, given to me. My part is to keep my eyes on Jesus and He clothes me with robes of righteousness. Job said in Job 29.14, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. Job spoke those words 4,000 years ago at a time when he had yet to understand that in truth, Isaiah 64 verse 6 tells us, all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Your righteousness, my righteousness, at best fig leaves. At worst, filthy garments. But when it is given to you to be wrapped in a robe of salvation and garments of righteousness, mm, that's the work of the Lord. What I'm saying to you is practical righteousness. Keeping your clothes, it's not worn on the sleeve, it's born in the heart. It's someone who's been born again, a life changed. And I'm not out there now proving my worth, I'm being made worthy. I'm not worried about, am I doing everything right? No, I'm focused on the virtue of Christ in me. Which naturally, and I would say supernaturally, produces righteous behavior, practical righteousness. So very simply, to stay awake and keep your clothes is to expect Jesus and to wear His presence. As we said a little earlier, walking in the Spirit. Aware of His presence. Not Sunday to Sunday, but day to day. Or moment to moment. That we are aware of Him. Focused on Him and expecting Him to come. And those two dynamics together will develop a practical righteousness in your life. You cannot avoid righteous behavior when you're focused on the Lord Jesus. Produces righteousness in you. And one of the ways that He helps us in this is He calls for... Recess! Recess! Alright kids, stop and play. Take a break. Like He told His disciples in Mark chapter 6, verse 31, come away and rest for a while. It's okay to rest. It's alright to take a break. That you might be clothed in righteousness. That you might be focused on His coming. And by the way, if you happen to be someone who's been living hard and fast and wandering and squandering, world-weary and restless. Remember what it was the father did with his prodigal son. He said in Luke 15, 22, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Even for the one who's wandered off, the father says, come on home and I will robe you and I will clothe you in this practical righteousness. So, for John, in Revelation 16.15, at this moment, this brief little pause, and not only for John, but also for those of us who read and hear and heed these words, Revelation 1.3, this verse is a welcome reminder of Jesus' coming and of His call for us to be dressed and ready. So keep your shirt on. Stay dressed. Be clothed with the practical righteousness of Jesus Christ and have your hope fixed on Him and you will be pure even as He is pure. 
That'd be a great place to end the sermon, but it's way too short. So let's continue on. Now, for the sake of this recess and this respite, I understand, again, why this happens. This inviting interruption comes between the sixth and the seventh bold judgments of chapter 16. I I, I get that. At least for now. See, it makes sense for us as students. It makes sense for us as followers of Jesus Christ and and even for John in writing these things down. What about for then? What about for then? What I'm asking is, this is a little strange to say, behold, I am coming like a thief to a world filled with people who are oblivious to Him. Therefore, He's going to come like a thief. So why would He say, blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps His clothes? Nobody is. They're all in rebellion. Why would He say this at this point? Here in the Great Tribulation, why does this show up now? At this time? To whom does Jesus come as a thief? He comes to those who are caught off guard. Right? As a thief to those who are naked and ashamed. To those who are hardened and blasphemous. So what good is the admonition doing right here? Chronologically speaking, when the world has totally rejected His return and could care less if it's walking around naked and ashamed. Did you hear this? I actually saw this this morning. It was a news headline. And I didn't go to the article because I didn't care to. But apparently one of the actresses in Game of Thrones, which I haven't seen, but she got huge backlash on social media because she got a body double to do a nude scene for her because she was pregnant. And didn't want to do the nude scene. But in this backlash, people got mad at her for not doing the nude scene herself. Unbelievable. And her response was, I would have done the nude scene, but I was pregnant. I have no problem doing a nude scene. Where have we gone? I mean, here we are, naked and unashamed. And so here comes this admonition, keep your clothes, stay awake, and people are sleeping and naked and they don't care. Why is it here? Placement seems a little odd to me. Well, I want to think about this for the rest of our time. I heard several years ago a little seven-question Bible quiz. Very cool little quiz. And I want to repeat this to you this morning and, and have you think it through. The question is, who am I talking about? Who am I talking about? Seven little questions. Think them through. Don't blurt it out. Let's see if you can get the answer. His birth happened as a direct result of a biological miracle. He was taken to Egypt to protect his life. As an infant, he was called the Son of God. I know the hints are heavy right now. (laughs) When he came back to the land, he was despised and rejected. Eventually, he was beaten and bloodied and put to death by Rome. But on the third day, he rose again. On the seventh, well, uh, number seven, he will live forever, never again to die. Of whom do I speak? Well, the obvious answer is Jesus, right? In Sunday school, what's the answer? It's always Jesus. <laughs> if the teacher asks a question at church, just say Jesus, blurt out Jesus, and you're probably going to be right. <laughs> and if you answer Jesus, that's the right answer, the obvious choice. But there's another that these seven questions describes. His parents called him Jacob. 
God renamed him Israel. Think about this. It took a biological miracle for his birth. Did you know that his mother, Rebecca, was barren? Genesis 25, 21. Isaac had to pray to God to restore her or to remove the barrenness because she was unable to have children. And Isaac prayed and God heard and Rebekah had Jacob and Esau. Or Esau and Jacob. Although Jacob ultimately is takes the place of firstborn. By the way, so was Jacob's grandmother, Sarah. She was barren. So was his wife, Rachel. She was barren. <laughs> Remarkable that here in just three uh, different ages, you've got three barren women right at the very beginning of God's promise to bless the whole world through Abraham. God works really well when life is barren. And so his mother was barren and there was a literally a biological miracle that brought about his birth and Israel and his sons would later do what go down to Egypt for salvation for protection to escape the famine that was going on in the land of Canaan there his son Joseph who had been sold into slavery but had risen wonderfully to second position over all Egypt under Pharaoh he welcomes his family He could have shunned them for what they did to him, but he welcomes them, brings them in, sets them up in the land of Goshen, and there they survive and thrive for 400 years. In his infancy, do you know Israel was called the Son of God? Exodus 4.22, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Hosea chapter 11 verse 1, when Israel was a youth, I loved him and out of Egypt I have called my son. And so after the 400 years, Israel returned from Egypt back into the promised land. What happened there? They were despised and hated by the Canaanites and Hittites and Gigabites and Kryptonites. Even the suburbanites didn't like them very much. The Assyrians bloodied them. Babylonians brutalized them. And finally, in 70 AD, the Romans killed them. That is, destroyed the nation. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, Jesus came into Jerusalem and wept, saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I have wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. We might even say barren. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of of the Lord. So the second temple was burned. You know the story. Burned to the ground just as the first temple had been. And in 135 AD, the Roman Emperor Hadrian renamed the land Palestina, Philistine country. That's where the name Palestine came from. He called Jerusalem Alia Capitolina, Hadrian's capital. And he did it to wipe out the name and the memory of the Jews from the land of Israel. To destroy the nation from the land. To completely extinguish it. And so you could say this son of God, this one of a biological miracle in his birth, this one who went to Egypt, who came back from Egypt, who was bloodied and brutalized, was finally killed by Rome. But on the third day, Israel rose again. Isaiah 66 verse 8, Who has heard such a thing? 
Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in a day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? And we've been over this history so many times across the last decade, but May 4th, 1948, the impossible happened while Israel rose up as a nation, was birthed again. You could say resurrected, although I wouldn't fully use that word. Yes, Israel rose to life as a nation, but, but it does remain spiritually dead. A secular state, uh, dry bones, as Ezekiel prophesied. But, but not dry bones lying on the ground. No, right now, these dry bones are standing up and rattling. Something's happening in Israel. But it is yet a nation devoid of the Spirit. We were talking about this, some of our shepherds, this, this last week, of the depravity that is in Israel. A lot of people will go to Israel and they'll think, oh, it's just going to be purely holy. And you arrive in Tel Aviv and go, whoa. Well, what is going on here? There is huge depravity in Israel today. Secularism. And by the way, secularism is failing. Failing massively. The Labor Party, which is a very secular party, took a huge hit this last week in the Israeli elections as the more conservative parties, the conservative right. And it's a little different than the conservative right in America, but the conservative right in Israel would include the more orthodox Jewish area, actually won the elections. Benjamin Netanyahu, another term now, a fifth term. Sorry, I'm, I'm kind of rabbit trailing on this, but it's amazing to watch what's happening in Israel, and yet it remains a secular state. So how can you say on the third day, Israel rose again? Because Israel will be raised up eternal to live forever. And there's yet another prophecy, Hosea chapter 6, verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us, but He will heal us. He has wounded us, but He will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. And He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before Him. That is spot on. Israel is revived right now, after two days, after 2,000 years of diaspora, dispersion, Israel is, well, it's revived. It's a nation again. But they say He will raise us up on the third day, the third day, the third thousandth year, when Israel will be ushered into the millennial kingdom and will be at that point resurrected spiritually. Spiritually alive. All these things are why I continue to talk about Israel. We are watching, we see a modern miracle and fulfillment of prophecy in our day happening with the people and the land of Israel. And yet, what's going on in our world? Anti-Semitism, anti-Jewish sentiment continues to, to surge. We're now watching it happen among members of our own Congress. Support of Israel crumbling among political parties in the United States of America where once it was strong, and even among Christian denominations, Israel is being rejected and denied and undercut. My friends, lines are being drawn. Lines are being drawn. Brothers and sisters, followers of Jesus Christ, whose side are you going to land on? Because God said in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel. 
I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And so Isaiah cried out, Isaiah 62, verse 1, For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory and you will be called by a new name which the mouth of the Lord will designate. And the point in all this is very simply, Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming. Jesus is coming for Israel. Just as He came for Israel before, Jesus is coming for Israel. Jesus always dresses for the occasion. He's always suited for the moment. The first time He came, He didn't come as a king of kings. He didn't come as a thief. He came as a humble prince of peace. Turning your Bibles back to Luke 19. Luke chapter 19. Today is Palm Sunday, isn't it? Listen to this. Speaking of Jesus coming, Luke chapter 19, verse 28. After he had said these things, I love verse 28. It says, He was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. That's unique, and Luke points it out, because up to this point, Jesus was typically in the middle of the herd. You know, the disciples around him, the throngs around him. He was in the center of things going on. He was very slow in movement. He was, you know, intentional in what he did. He never got out ahead of anybody, but now he's out taking the lead. He's going on ahead. The apostles are looking. They're behind him. What's going on? I mean, he, he is a man with a mission heading up to Jerusalem. And when he approached Bethphage and Bethany, near the mountain that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. (laughs) So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Now, we don't see a verse between verses 34 and 35, but I can just see the owner going, oh, okay. (laughs) The Lord has need of it. Oh, go ahead. In verse 35, they brought it to Jesus and they put their coats on the colt and they put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. And as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, The whole crowd, note this, of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now John tells us in his perspective of this same event, John 12 verse 12, that the large crowd who had come to the feast when they heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees, Palm Sunday, and they went out to meet Him. So picture the scene. He's coming over the crest of the Mount of Olives and beginning that descent, what we call the, the Palm Sunday Road. And as He's heading down that steep 
incline of the Mount of Olives, riding on this donkey's colt, his disciples, this is very planned, are putting down coats and they're praising him and they're quoting Psalm 118 as they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and here he comes. But it's not just the disciples. It's people in Jerusalem. They hear he's coming. They're on their way outside, coming down out of the city and crossing the Cadron to meet them as they come. A whole throng of people grabbing palm branches and they're throwing them down and they're waving in the sky and they're worshiping and praising and the two come to a head as Jesus rides down this mountain. You have disciples and you have just the common folk who hear he's coming. And they all gathered there in this marvelous time of worship. All four gospel writers tell the story of what we call Palm Sunday. All four gospel writers, Matthew 21, Mark 11, John 12, and here in Luke 19, and they all use the same word. They record that Jesus was riding on a polis, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Note that in verse 30, Luke is very specific that he says that Jesus says you're going to find a, tote, a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. So this is an unbroken colt, which I would think would be a little risky for a first ride. Not for the donkey whisperer. The colt carries him right down the Mount of Olives with this throng of crazy worshiping people across the Cadron Valley, up into Jerusalem without kicking or braying or making a scene. But the point of the cult, you Bible students, you know this, is prophecy. It is a specific fulfillment of prophecy. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. And he is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Perfect fulfillment of prophecy. Now, some might protest that. Jesus obviously knew the prophecy. Of course He did. And so He intentionally orchestrated the whole event, got His disciples in on it. They planned the thing out. And down He comes to stage a prophecy And my answer to that is, of course he did. Yes, he staged the prophecy, the fulfillment. Of course he planned the event. That doesn't undermine the credibility of the prophecy. That doesn't take away one iota from it. In fact, it lends weight to it. Why is that? Because all prophecy is orchestrated by the hand of God. All prophecy was intentional. God does what needs to take place that all prophecy would be fulfilled and fulfilled literally as we saw in the first coming of Jesus. Every single one, a literal fulfillment of what was said would come. And that's the point. So yes, Jesus knew all about this this 550-year-old prophecy of Zechariah. And He orchestrated it. Marvelously, on the very day that Daniel wrote about 50 years before Zechariah. So 600 years earlier, Daniel said Messiah would come exactly 173,880 days after the decree is given to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. Daniel 9, 25 and 26. That decree you can read about in the book of Nehemiah. That decree is the only decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. It's the only decree that fits And it's exactly 
483 years from the giving of that decree that Messiah should be coming in, should be seen for who He is. And on that precise day, Jesus rode into Jerusalem, humble on a donkey's foal, perfectly suited for peace. Orchestrated, yes. But Jesus would have had no control over the timing. Only God would have that kind of control. Only God could pull off something like that. Which I guess means you could say Jesus did have control over the timing, didn't He? Being God in the flesh. A king on a powerful steed charges into war. A prince of peace, Messiah the prince, he rode a colt. You don't ride a donkey's colt into war, you ride it into peace. And so as he came this first time, that's what he offered. That's what Jesus proposed, peace. He came as the humble prince of peace in his first coming, perfectly suited for the occasion. As Isaiah 9-7 tells us, his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Peace on earth, goodwill among those on whom his favor rests, the angels saying, Luke 2.14. Or Matthew 11.29, Jesus says, I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Recess. A little recess with Jesus. John 14, peace I leave with you, he says. Verse 27, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Have you accepted his proposal of peace? Have you received peace from Jesus? Or are you still fighting? Are you still rebelling? Are you still pushing back, kicking back? Have you received peace? By the way, as the people are shouting out, Hosanna, Hosanna, they say. Well, the Greek word Hosanna is the Hebrew word Yashana. Yashana, save us, we pray. We beseech you, save us. But it's Yashana, na being a, a beseeching, a pleading. But Yasha, the word for salvation, and it is the root word for Yeshua, the Hebrew name of Jesus. And Luke records this, uh, Luke 19.38, that the people are saying, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. I told you that's Psalm 118. They're singing the psalm. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118, 26. But listen, get this, don't miss this. It's the next verse in Psalm 118 that explains how the Prince of Peace would provide that peace. How does He bring peace? Psalm 118, 27. The Lord is God. He has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Because peace comes through sacrifice. And Christ, our Passover, at the end of that week, the week of His coming into Jerusalem, days later, would be bound with cords to the altar of Calvary, nailed, driven to the cross. So that the Prince of Peace might really bring peace. So Jesus came suited as the humble Prince of Peace. 
The next time He comes to Jerusalem, He will come a charging in. He will be dressed completely differently. He comes as the Holy King of Kings. Look at Revelation 19, verse 11. Revelation 19.11. I'm just going to read it this morning because we're going to come back and study it in just a few weeks or months, depending on how long I take to get there. <laughs> Revelation 19.11. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, not a colt, not a foal. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Israel's King of Kings. He came first to Israel, to the Jew first, and also to the nations. He came as a prince of peace, dressed in peace, riding that colt, arriving suited for the occasion. And and now, or we should say then, he comes to Israel once again, riding in on that white charger. And on that day, Zechariah 12.10 tells us, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on Me whom they have pierced. Oh, they will mourn for Him as one mourns for an only son. They will weep bitterly over Him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Why will they weep? Why will they recognize who their Messiah, finally recognize who He is? Because God's going to pour out His Spirit on them. They will be raised to real life. They will be born again. In that moment as they see the coming of Jesus fully embracing their Messiah. And this is why I get excited about Israeli elections. And the Knesset. What's going on over there? The U.S. Embassy moved to Jerusalem. Wow, that thrilled me. People are thinking, why? Just an embassy move. What's the deal? It's why I get excited about the annexations or possible annexations on the West Bank. And people say, oh, those poor Palestinians. And I say, hey, there are a used people and abused people who need Jesus. But that land belongs to Israel. You know what the West Bank is? We'll talk about this Wednesday night. You know what the real West Bank is of of Jewish property as proposed by God? It's the West Bank of the Euphrates River, not the West Bank of the Jordan. God told Abraham in Genesis 15, your land goes all the way to the Euphrates, baby. 300,000 square miles. And it's going to happen. We know God's intentions for Israel. And knowing God's intentions for Israel, that should be our intention for Israel as well. We know Jesus is coming back to and for Israel. What about us? We're coming with Him! We're not left out of the deal, but let's stay focused here. Revelation 16. What's happening? The world is falling apart in massive judgment. What's happening with the faithful remnant of Israel at this time? Romans 11.26, all Israel will be saved. 
Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. So get this, he comes to Israel, came to Israel as a humble prince of peace. He comes to Israel as the holy king of kings, but there is one more way that Jesus arrives in between these two. He comes to Israel as a hopeful thief. A hopeful thief. So again, I ask the question, to whom does Jesus come like a thief? And the answer is, to those who are naked and asleep, He is seen as a thief. So why again this call to be dressed and ready at the end of the bold judgments when the world is as far from readiness as it has ever been? Hey, this single verse call is not for the world that is naked and ashamed. Because for the world, He comes like a thief. They will not see Him coming until He's there. And it's not for Christians. It's not for the church. Hey, we can take great encouragement in Revelation 16, 15. 15. We can pick it up and go, yes, He's coming. Behold, He's coming. I'm excited that He's coming. I can take a little recess from reading about and studying the bold judgments to be thankful my Lord is coming and He's going to get me out of here before all of this takes place. But this is not for the church. It's not for John sitting there on Patmos. When Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. I believe this comforting admonition is placed here to be read and heard and heeded by Israel. The faithful remnant of Israel in the wilderness, in that place, protected. Think about what's happening chronologically at this moment in tribulation. All heaven is breaking loose. The wrath of God is coming down hard on this world. Boils, blood, heat, darkness, Armageddon, ultimately hailstones. And while they are in a place prepared, while they are protected, think for a moment what it will be like to be faithful Israel in that safe place, that mountain stronghold, while all this is breaking loose all around them. You know you're safe. It's like in a massive windstorm on North Whidbey Island. You're in your house, the power goes out, and pretty much you know you're safe, but you hear the trees bending sideways. And there is something inside of you that says, wow, glad I'm inside. I hope the trees don't join me here. Israel will be aware of what's happening on planet Earth all around. While they're in light, there's darkness everywhere else. While they're protected, blood and and heat and all of this is taking place. And I cannot imagine that they will be anything but trembling at the culmination of wrath and judgment poured out on the world. Ain't nobody going to be snoozing in Petra. And Jesus says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. I believe that this is for Israel. And at this moment of darkness and despair all around them, while they tremble, Jesus says, I'm coming and get this, understand this. It's not that his coming is imminent like it is for you and me today. It's that his coming is immediate. I'm almost there. I'm coming now. This is the end of what you have been told. 
I, for one, am absolutely convinced the book of Revelation is going to be read and reread dozens of times through the tribulation by the Jews, by the faithful remnant. They're going to be pouring over the scriptures to understand and watch and see and, and know the timing of all this. And as they come to chapter 16 and they recognize all these things described happening and they read verse 15, what comfort, comfort, oh comfort, my people Israel, Isaiah 40 verse 1 tells us. And I believe Jesus is speaking to his people, reminding them that he's almost there. Alfred Edersheim, 19th century Jewish scholar, turned follower of Jesus, wrote several fascinating books. He shed light on what's taking place here. Revelation 16, 15, blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes. See, Edersheim tells us that the captain of the temple guard would make his way around the walls and the ramparts of Jerusalem during the night to be sure that the guards were wide awake and alert. If he found them sleeping, they were either whacked on the head to wake them up or their garments were set on fire. (laughs) That'll keep you awake on watch. Blessed is the one who keeps awake and keeps his garments. So just before the seventh bold judgment, Jesus says, I'm coming, stay awake, keep your clothes on, be dressed in readiness. Kind of like the night before the deliverance from Egypt, when he said, be dressed, have your traveling shoes on, eat unleavened bread so you're good to go, you're ready to leave. And that's the reason I call Jesus the hopeful thief in this in this arrival, in His coming for Israel. The hopeful thief, because those who know He's coming, He's the hopeful thief. Those who know He's coming know they are the spoils. They are the ones He's coming for. And there is great hope in that. Israel's national anthem today is Hatikva, my hope. And He is called the hope of Israel. Jeremiah seventeen thirteen. O Lord, the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved, for you are my praise. Jesus always knows what to wear. He's always dressed for the occasion. This morning, perhaps, you need Him to come as a Prince of Peace. Humble, mounted on a foal. Maybe your life is in turmoil. You need the peace that passes all understanding. Jesus will come to you that way. And maybe you need Him to come in strong measure, charging in on a mighty steed, King of kings, poised and ready to take out the enemy, to do battle for you, or to rescue you or someone you love. But for some, he says, behold, I am coming like a thief. And I pray it's not you. He came as Prince of Peace. Rest assured, he's coming next as a thief. First for his church, then for his people. And then he rides into Jerusalem as King of Kings. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for how propitious you are how intentional you are even in the laying out of prophecy and the intentional fulfillment of it 
so that we don't have to be guessing or questioning or wondering or fearful or paranoid. But we can be, Lord, among those who right now are dressed and ready, wide awake, sober, looking for the day. And Father, in that soberness, we have great joy. Truly, Lord, the soberness of Scripture is filled with joy. Wide awake and alert and happy and joyful in our salvation and in, in the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. Now, Father, I pray, Holy Spirit, would You come this morning suited for each person, recognizing intimately what the needs are. We ask You. We beseech You. We say, Hosanna, come save. We cry out as on that Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago. We say, Oh, Lord, we beseech You, save. Save. Holy Spirit of the living God, I pray, save. Save us from ourselves. Save us from lack of faith. Save those who don't believe. May we, in dressed in readiness and wide awake, Father, may we be agents of Your salvation, simply speaking the word of truth, the Gospel of Jesus. As we look with anticipation and expectance to Your coming. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.